I was so hoping that his mom would actually be here today to kind of respond to the cooking comment, but uh, you, know, you know, whatever on that. Here's what I want to do. I want to paint a picture for you of a different kind of life. Imagine a kind of life where emotions like joy and peace and courage and poise are what mark you. Imagine a kind of life where petty rivalries and jealousies and the envy that so kind of poisons relationships is no more. Imagine a kind of life where the wedges that come between us and the insecurities that feed them sort of dissolve and they're replaced just by something that's genuine and something that's honest and something that's sincere and something where you're comfortable in your own skin. I want you to imagine a kind of life, if you will, where those, those bitter roots that seem to take take hold of our hearts, those grudges that we can't get over, that, that, that certain kind of poison that just always seems to kind of be in the soul starts to get leached out. And I want you to imagine a kind of life where, where aging does not lead to frailty, but with every passing year, instead of getting weaker, and instead of your body failing more, it gets stronger, and it gets vital, and it gets wiser. Imagine a kind of life where with every year that you grow, much like a kid who is growing throughout your years, vitality becomes more and more of the watchword, and wisdom becomes more and more of the MO, and the experience of life is no longer mediated or muted by a failing body. Imagine a life where words like cancer are no more, where words like disability are no more, where Alzheimer's is no more. Imagine a life where death itself is no longer in the vocabulary. Imagine a life, a kind of life, where people and, and people are, are, are zealous and passionate and hungry for God, where a certain malaise and boredom of, of, of greater things is replaced by a consuming fire, but the fire is filled, it is a hunger that is satisfied with a feast that is richer than anything the soul could have dreamed. And imagine that within that, a vast wonder and array of what life as we know it and the world as it, as it occurs has to offer explodes on the scene with a higher depth and a higher resolution than could ever be imagined. Imagine a life captured by not only a purpose and a drive towards something wonderful wonderful and great, but marked by an intimacy where a relationship with God is no longer adversarial, but something that you would describe among the closest of friends. And imagine, if you can, a life where people find themselves in deep relationship with God this way, but also with other people 
No more of this superficiality. No more of this second guessing. No more of this wondering what they really think, but together and happy about it. And imagine that it extends even beyond people to the world that God created where it just functions with the beauty and array that God imagined. And there's a certain harmony taking place. And imagine, if you will, that kind of life. Now imagine it lasting forever. You might say, that sounds too good to be true. But that is the kind of life that Jesus claims to offer and that John obsesses himself talking about in his gospel. Christians will sometimes describe this kind of life as eternal life. Sometimes you'll hear it put in Bible translations included as everlasting life. And these, of course, are helpful terms because it roots us in the idea that it never ends. But it can also be misleading. Because when you talk about eternal life or everlasting life, it makes you think not only on something that is yet to come, but it also makes you think about the duration of things as though that is the point, that it is infinite. And while that is true, that is not quite hitting the nail on the head when Jesus talks about the kind of life that I've just described to you and that John likes to talk about. I prefer the more literalistic reading you'll find in the Bible. Not eternal life, not everlasting life, but to be very literalistic with that New Testament language, to describe it as life of the age to come. Now, from a biblical mindset, especially an Old Testament Hebrew sort of mindset, all of history, all of life, from the very beginning of creation into the infinity that never ends, can be, dis- can be divided into two major periods of time. And they would describe it as the present age and the age to come. Now, I've shown you and talked about some of this before, but I think it's, it's worth repeating. The present age is the age as we know it, marked by the horrors and trials and darkness and pain that we are so well accustomed to by the fears and uncertainties and failings of human beings and the aftermath in which we have to live because of it, whether cast upon us from people on the outside or something that is welling up from within, an age marked by a certain degree of separation from God. 
Not together and close, like friends, but the Bible talks about an age to come. An age when God will return to remake, renew, and recreate all things, restoring them to the glory that he intended. And, and, and to restore life as we know it, not in this strange shadow existence that we operate and move and animate in right now, but the fullness of life as God has always intended from the beginning a fullness of life that we don't experience, but a fullness of life found only in this age that God is offering when he comes again. The Old Testament would look at these two great ages and see the dividing line as what they would call the day of the Lord or simply the day, that day when God would arrive, when he would come and be on the scene and God himself personally, beyond what human beings could ever do or ever dream, come and renew and remake and restart all things again, ushering in this new age or second age that is to come. The New Testament writers and Jesus saw something of this. Something more than just a prophet and something more than just a sage teacher. Something more than just a good man. But something beyond and transcendent to the very present of God himself. Almost as though through Jesus, God was ushering in that age to come. Breaking in, if you will, into this age and with it, bringing life. Life of the age to come, barreling in from eternity like a truck breaking through the roadblocks of hell, coming here, and now this is the life that Jesus talks about. This is the life that John writes about. This is the picture that I want you to hold on to when you read in your Bibles or hear Christians use the phrase eternal life, everlasting life. Think less about its duration and more about its nature. It is a life of the age to come that Jesus comes and offers now. Jesus himself says, I have come that they may have life. This kind of life, life to the full. And this is the heart of the story that John is telling in his gospel, in his biography of Jesus. And it's the heartbeat of what Jesus is gonna talk about in John chapter three, I'd like to invite you to turn there with me. You can get it on your phone. There's chairs um, in front of you or that you're sitting on that have Bibles tucked in if you need a hard copy. But I'd like you to follow along with me as John tells this story and let's see the story that John wants to tell us about Jesus. John chapter three arguably one of the most important, if not the most important chapter in the Bible. Certainly, I would argue the most famous from where we get John 3, 16. If you know it, I invite you to say it with me. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have, will have life of the age to come. That whoever believes in him will not perish but will have life of the age to come. In John chapter three, Jesus is gonna talk about it. He's going to talk about it. He's going to talk about how to get it. And next to learning and coming to know the heart and mind and person of who Jesus is, what he says here might be the most important thing you'll ever learn. Now, what I'd like to do is I'd like to walk you through this chapter somewhat verse by verse. I want to kind of teach it plainly. I want to try to explain it cleanly. I want to walk through some of the confusion points and pitfalls so that unlike the character in the story, a man named Nicodemus, you don't walk away from the discussion with Jesus equally confused. Follow with me. Let me read it. Then we'll come back and look a little more deeply. It says this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born and your translation probably says, again. How can a man be born when he's old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. But Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying. You must be born again. Look, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going. So it is of everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. To which Jesus replies, and I love this, you're Israel's teacher. And you don't get this? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we see, but still you people do not understand or accept our testimony. I've spoken to you about earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And we'll pause there. Now, if you read the Gospel of John, there is a pattern that I'm going to show you that maybe you've picked up here in John chapter 3. It's a pattern of what happens every time someone gets into a conversation with Jesus. Here's how the pattern goes. Step one, 
Someone comes to Jesus commenting on something, asking something, praising him about something, or challenging him about something. Step two, Jesus answers in a way that is confusing and hard to understand. Step three, what Jesus said is completely misunderstood by the person. Step four, Jesus answers then again in a way that is now harder to understand. After which, there's some kind of lengthy explanation to help take you through the mire and morass of what's going on. Do you have this moment coming out of like John chapter three going, what the heck is going on? Like, what is he talking about? Like snakes being lifted up on poles and being born of water and the spirit and wind blowing wherever it wants and son of man going to heaven. And you're like, where is this going? Let me ask you this. Have you ever been confused by Jesus? Like, like brother, I just don't know what you're saying. If so, take heart. You're not alone. So is everyone else, including Israel's teachers who knew the scriptures better than anyone. So we, here we see in John chapter three, the same pattern taking place. And it begins with this man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, one who devoted himself to the ways of God, the law of God, the Torah of God, one who sat on the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, one who was invested the authority and responsibility for discerning, correcting, and teaching the way of God to the next generation. And he comes to Jesus he comes to Jesus and he says, you know, we've been watching you. And there's no denying it. The signs that you're doing, the wonders that you're doing, brother, you gotta be sent from God. But it's fascinating to me that when Nicodemus comes, did you catch what time of day it happened to be? At night. He comes at night. It's fascinating to me. Why? Why does Nicodemus come at night? Is it so that no one else will see? That no one else will know? Sneaking out like a politician or a journalist going to meet a source in a back alley, but not wanting to be identified with that person. Maybe. Maybe what we see here is a man who had clout and authority and responsibility, a man who was respected and lifted up, a man who had much to lose. Yet intrigued and piqued. A heart and imagination captured, if you will, by, by what's going around this, this peasant itinerant prophet named Jesus and not willing to commit himself just yet. There's another possibility though. Another possibility that maybe casts Nicodemus in a different light. The rabbis of which 
Nicodemus was one, or certainly the precursor too. The rabbis had a phrase that the best time to study Torah, do you know this word? The teachings of God, scriptures? The best time to study Torah, they would say, is at night. Because then there is no distraction. Have you found yourself ever wanting to read the Bible, study the Bible, spend time with God, and you try to do it during the day? What happens? Distraction. Oftentimes, the distraction comes from without. A child who needs your attention, a boss who wants you to actually get back to work. A to-do list running through your mind. A notification that bings and grabs your mind over here. Life is filled with distractions, and the day has more of them than we can ever know. But at night, when the world has gone to bed and things are quiet, and the heart becomes stilled, we give ourselves permission, if you will, to just be present. be present in the place of God and not occupied by all kinds of other things. It changes, doesn't it? Night for you might be early, early morning. It might be late. Jesus was mobbed by the crowds all day. But maybe Nicodemus wanted Jesus to himself. Maybe he wanted to wrestle things out with Jesus in a way that the crowds would not be distracting, the demands of life would not be distracting, and we can actually get into the most important discussions and topics that life has to offer. Maybe Nicodemus wasn't hiding, but going with the best of motives. Instead, I can tell you personally that I have found that my greatest times of intimacy with God are often between 2 and 4 a.m. That sometimes you're just awake and you sit there and you stare at the ceiling and you go, this is stupid. And those moments I've come to cherish them, even this last night, just a time to get up, get to the Bible reading I couldn't get to all day. Something still and wonderful in that place. I've always been struck by the monastic communities. 3.15 a.m., their bells will toll and the monks will gather for worship. When I first experienced them, like, you guys are nuts. <laughs> and you know what? They are. But they're on to something. And the stillness of the night. How many of you wake up in the middle of the night with your mind racing? the worries of life crashing around you at a time of day when there is nothing to do with them but fret? What would it be like instead to just be still in the presence of God and know that tomorrow's trouble will be waiting for you when you wake up? But here in this moment, to be focused with him, how bad do you want the truths and insights and presence of God. Enough to get up and go out in the middle of the night to find it. Nicodemus did. And it was there that he met Jesus. 
and said, Lord, Jesus, you know, we've seen that you are a great teacher. We've seen these miracles that you've been doing. But I love how Jesus changes the conversation. It's almost like Jesus says, did you catch it? These signs and these wonders that you're so excited about, they're not really what's important. What's really important is the change that takes place inside of a person, a change so complete and different that it can only be described as rebirth, if you will. And so Jesus counters Nicodemus' statement by saying this, did you read it? Follow with me, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God right? Unless he is born, maybe, maybe. What Jesus actually says here is no one can see the kingdom of God and later you must be born anathen. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born anathen. You must be born anathen, which kind of stings because now we have no idea what he's talking about, right? And the stakes seem high. Anathen is a Greek word. Of course, the Gospel of John is recorded in Greek. It would appear that Jesus spoke it and the disciples did too. Jesus comes to Nicodemus and he says, you must be born anathen. There's at least three different ways you could take this phrase. The first would be this. Radically. Completely. Radically in the literal etymological sense of not meaning extreme, though let's not jettison that. But in the root of the word radical means like radius, radix, from the root, like a radish, Right? It's a root. From the source. You need to be born from the source. You need it to come from the source. Not what people have made it. Not what people have said about it. Not the way it's been watered down, diluted, or repackaged today. No, you gotta be born back from the source. And Jesus will later say, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You need to be born of God. You need to be born from the source of life. If anyone wants to see the kingdom of God, one way of taking this phrase, anathen, or the entire phrase, let me put it up here, you must be born anathen, is to say you must be born from the source. And with that comes a radical change. A second way, of course, you could take it is just to mean the way that most translations put it. Again, that the life you have now is not the life that Jesus is talking about. No, you need a different life, a different kind of life. You need to be born a second time, again, in a new kind of way, a life of the age to come. A third way you could take it is what you'll see in most of your Bibles in the footnotes if you ever care to look at them. From above, 
You need to be born from above. And of course, who's above? God. Three different ways of getting at the same idea. And John loves word plays. Jesus does too. And I think it's quite possible, if not probable, that he means all three when he talks about this new kind of life that Jesus is offering. That if you want to see the kingdom of God, you need to be born radically from the source, from God alone, from above, anew, a second time. This is what God is offering you. And Nicodemus seems confused. But I want to submit to you that it is confusion is not over understanding. Because what Jesus is talking about here is actually nothing new. The Old Testament is replete with this idea of replacing your heart of stone with a heart of flesh, with turning people's hearts back to God and renewing their spirit. It will even use resurrection language to talk about those who are dead in their sins coming back to life again. No, Nicodemus was one of Israel's teacher. He knew what was going on. It wasn't the desirability of this life that I think was throwing Nicodemus, but the possibility. As though Nicodemus is saying, Jesus, you're saying I need to be born anathen? I know. And I've been trying my entire life. It's an impossibility. The change that I want, the rebirth that the Bible offers, this new way of life that it describes, I have given my life to it and it is outside of my grasp. It is the frustration of the eternal problem of humanity wanting to change while realizing they are unable to. And so Jesus responds. And in verse five, he says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. If born anathen is creating difficulty, let me make it more complicated. You need to be born of water. And the spirit, what does he mean? Water, it should be no surprise, has always been used as an image for cleansing. You need to be made clean. You need to be washed clean. Anyone who is aware of their condition, their mortality, their frailty, their sin, they know this full well. A hunger and a desire to be made clean, not just on the outside, but from within. A renewed heart, a renewed desire, a renewed motivation, something different from the darkness that wages within me, from the darkness that owns and enslaves me. 
And Jesus says you need to be born of the spirit of God's power. Cleansed before God, but empowered by God. Tapping that which he is able to do that you are powerless to. You need to be born of God's spirit, something beyond your reach. Only God can do this. Oh, we find ourselves unable, don't we? Before the sin that owns us. Before the death and frailty that takes us. Before powers at work in this world that are beyond us. We're unable to even fix ourselves. But Jesus offers a different kind of life, a life born not of your own doing and not of your own making. A life of cleansing and empowerment that brings life of the age to come, a life born of God. Jesus saying, you cannot clean yourself. You cannot do it. So what you cannot do, I will do for you. God will do through me for you. This is what Jesus is talking about. So that all who call on his name will have life in the age to come. We spend our lives spinning our wheels trying to attain a life that is always outside of our reach. And for those of us who are awakened to the deeper, more important things, aren't we just struck by our complete inability, but Jesus comes and says, the spirit of God offers you the life you can never attain. And so I invite you to say it with me. Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have Life of the age to come. Let's say it the right way. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have life of the age to come. Do you want that life? The picture of that life, it's what Jesus is offering. He says to all who just receive it, who come to believe in me. Oh no, not just thinking that I existed. But who come to believe that I am who I claim to be. Who come to hear my words as being the very words of God themselves and live according to their authority. To those who throw themselves on their mercy, on my, on, on my mercy, and don't just believe things about me, but trust me. Trust me with themselves to those life of the age to come. John chapter three. We'll pick up next week with the rest of what Jesus has to say. 
particularly as it comes in that journey, in dealing with what becomes so stark in the process, our own guilt and shame. But more on that next Sunday. Would you rise and pray with me? Lord Jesus, it's you who said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. It is an invitation and and offering a gift. A gift given to each and every one of us. Lord, we come as people in desperate need of this life. Of this cleansing in the spirit. Wash us clean, O God. Fill us, O God, with the power of your spirit. Surround us. Take hold of our hearts and our minds, drawing us and changing us from the inside out. Transform us, O Lord. Recreate us and renew that our lives may be marked by the cry, new creation, the old has gone. Being renewed. Give us the life, O Jesus, that you have come to bring this half-life world. Lord, may we receive you put our stock and trust in you. Anchor our lives and our destiny on your promise. May the life of the age to come begin in us anew today. Lord God, we pray. Amen.